Welcome back to the program. This Sunday, over 50,000 people will run in the New York City Marathon. Part of the appeal is to be in this social media segregated world, part of a personal face-to-face event. For others, it's about achieving personal best. But for a much smaller group of elite marathon runners, it's about what once seemed the impossible dream, breaking the two-hour mark for the 26 miles through the streets of New York. Why this goal is important, how it's hung over the sport, and why it's within reach now are all discussed in my guest Ed Caesar's new book, Two Hours. Ed Caesar has contributed to The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, Outside, and Smithsonian. He's covered events in many parts of the world, including Iran, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and Kosovo. And it is my pleasure to welcome Ed Caesar to the program to talk about his book, Two Hours, The Quest to Run the Impossible Marathon. Ed, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much, Jeff. It's great to have you here. Why is this discussion about breaking the two-hour mark for a marathon really so front and center today? Why now? What's happened? Well, it's because we're very close in terms of the time. So the the world record for the marathon is 2.02.57, which was set in Berlin last year by a Kenyan called Dennis Kamato. And, uh, you know, two hours... uh, you know, two minutes and 57 seconds. It doesn't sound like very much to get down to two hours. You know, it's a short pop song or you might be able to kind of soft boil a small egg in that time. But it's, uh, it's, a, it's a thing of great interest to physiologists everywhere. Is it actually possible to shave another two and a half percent out of the world record? A lot of people think it's not possible. Many people think it is. And that's why we keep having this debate. Every time a world record falls, we continue having the debate. Is it actually possible for someone to run 434 miles for 26.2 miles? I guess the, the broader question is what's happening in terms of training, physiology? Why is it getting so much closer today? Well, the world record's come down a lot uh, in the past decade. And, and the reason why is really because East Africa uh, which is the hot spot of distance running, has taken the marathon much, much more seriously in the last 10 to 15 years. So uh, many more people are going straight to the marathon rather than having careers at the track because the marathon is where the money is for these guys. Uh, and so what you have is this huge swell of talent in the marathon, and the very best guys uh, you know, are, are pushing the boundaries of what's possible. And what is it that creates those best guys that are coming from that part of Africa and Kenya? I mean, it, it, it's almost axiomatic that when you think about long-distance runners, they're from Kenya. Yeah, they have, um, you know, and it's, it's even smaller than that, really, because, you know, they come from Kenya. They are generally from the Kalenjin tribe, who are, uh, you know, 80% of the fastest marathon runners in the world are from this one tribe in Kenya. And they are on the western edge of the Rift Valley, and it's a very geographically particular spot. And they win a lot, partly because running is extremely important to them culturally. They've, you know, they've done it for many decades. Uh, but also because there are certain physiological advantages. They live very high. Um, their ancestry is actually sea level. You know, they were from the Nile Valley originally, so they're getting all this benefit from the from living at altitude. And you know, the the incentives are so powerful for them to to run because it is for many of them the single route out of poverty there is no other route if you want to do it you've got to run given how powerful these runners are that are coming out of kenya given that there have been so many and that they have been so successful 
What impact is that having on driving others out of the sport in many ways? I think that's a really interesting point. So America used to have the greatest marathon runners on earth. You know, when Bill Rogers was winning, you know, the Boston and New York Marathon and Frank Shorter winning gold in 1972 in the marathon. Uh, but you don't see many great American marathon runners now. And it's not just that they're not great compared to the Kenyans. They're not great compared to the marathon runners that America had in the 70s. You know, if you look at the times, not much has changed. So uh, I think people, um, people see the sport as dominated by East Africans, Ethiopians, Kenyans, Eritreans, and they feel like there's almost no way into it for them. Um, I think the other point to note is that America could have incredible marathon runners. You know, the talent is here for sure. It's just that the, you know, the economics don't always work out. Are you going to really, really bust everything you've got to, to be a marathon runner in America when the prize money is by American standards not huge? Uh, and, you know, the chances of you achieving it are so slim. Um, you know, maybe if you have that talent, you're going to go into a different sport. I think, that's, I think that's a lot of what's happened. So the money really is at the core of it and, and the opportunities that come out of being successful. I think so. You know, there's, um, the way that I understood this story, you know, I followed some of the very top guys, and they don't talk about money a lot, but that's because they're already successful. You know, they've already become rich men. And so they talk about other things that motivate them, like, uh, you know, breaking records and, and so on. But, you know, for most guys that are, are trying to become professional runners in East Africa, you know, most of them didn't own a pair of shoes until they were teenagers. Uh, and, you know, the average salary uh, for a whole family in, in, you know, Kalenjin area of Kenya is about $900. Well, the guy that lines up, you know, his favorite in, in New York on on Sunday is going to be, you know, he'll have had $150,000 at least just to turn up. You know, so if you think about where these guys have come from uh, and where they get to, you can understand why money is a huge factor. How much does the place the marathon is taking place have an impact in, in trying to break this two-hour mark? Is it different in Berlin versus New York versus London? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's huge. The, di the difference is, is huge. So Berlin is the fastest course in the world. Uh, it's where the most world records are set. New York is uh, famously slow. Uh, the first time Bill Rogers won the uh, the five-borough version of the New York City Marathon in 1976, he came off at the end and he said, "I was like urban cross country." And you know that that definition of New York has stuck. You know, it's up and down. The corners are tight. You know, it's just not a race that anyone expects anyone to break a world record on. And you can just see that in the course records. You know, Joffrey Mutai uh, got the course record in New York. It's 2.05.06, and people thought that was an astonishing time. The world record is, you know, it's more than two minutes faster than that. So um, you can see how much of a difference being on the, on the right course can make. And besides Berlin, are there any particular courses in the U.S. that are faster? I guess the time for Boston is faster than New York. The time for Boston is faster, but uh, mostly times for Boston, you know, are similar to New York and, and slower, in fact. You know, there's a lot of hills and what have you. Uh, Chicago is probably the fastest major marathon in, in America, and I actually think that if uh, people put their minds to it and set it up in the right way, you could really see a world record in Chicago. You know, the, world, the women's world record's been set there. I don't see any reason why Chicago can't be as fast as Berlin. What's different today in terms of training, physical training, nutrition, yeah. et cetera, that is contributing to faster runners? 
you know, the main thing is they are doing much more intense interval training than I think has ever been done in the history of the sport. So interval training to the uninitiated is just periods of fast running uh, and then a period of slow running. And it's, and it's been in the sport for many, many decades. You know, the Swedes uh, uh, started it. They, you know, they came up with this idea of fartlek, which is, you know, to, to run intervals. So it's not a new idea, interval training, but the way that the Kenyans do it, it's so intense. You know, they'll run like a half marathon's worth of speed training. Uh, they'll run incredibly fast for two or three minutes, and then they'll take a minute off. You know, it's really, really astonishing uh, how much they're punishing their bodies. But what they're trying to tune their bodies to do is to be able to withhold a very fast pace for a long time. And when you see them out on the road uh, at a big marathon, you know, the very best in the world, it is astonishing to watch it up close how they can sustain a speed of nearly 13 miles an hour for, for just over two hours. That is incredible. Talk about the physical prowess that it takes and really what, what makes a great runner. I mean, th- there's the training part, certainly, yeah. that we've been talking about, but there certainly are, there, there are physical attributes that are critical. Yeah, it, it helps to be stick thin. So it's really good to be very thin, and it's especially good to be thin kind of below the knee. So weight that's carried you know, far out on your legs uh, is obviously costing you more energy to take down the road. So if you're very thin, like a lot of the Kalenjin guys, you know, from the calf downwards and very sinewy, that's helpful. Uh, uh, powerful lungs. Uh, I think, you know, the most important bit of the body is the top six inches because really what you're trying to tell yourself to do is ridiculous and your body revolts against being told to run at 30 <laughs> miles an hour. Uh, and so the top guys have very strong minds and are able to withhold an awful lot of punishment. What does it take out of them to do this? Well, it's extremely, you know, debilitating. I mean, it's not so much the races, it's the training. You know, they're running 125 miles a week, fast and slow, up and down, at altitude, and they do 125 miles a week every week when they're in full training. Uh, I worked out the other day that um, in one period of full training before a marathon, uh, say four and a half months, uh, a top marathon runner would have run from... New York City to Los Angeles. Now, you just can't keep doing that over and over again. And that's why very, very few marathon runners get better after their 10th competitive marathon. So once you've run 10, the chances of you running a faster time are almost you know, vanishingly small. It just doesn't happen very often. What about so, age? Yeah, it's just a, it's, you know, that was one really, really astonishing statistic for me, but it shows you what, what the race and the training is taking out of them. What about their age, and what, what does that contribute? Well, I guess there's a peak, you know, but the peak is different for different people. Um, you know, mid to late 20s to early 30s generally seems to be the peak. Um, but there's a guy running on Sunday who is 22 who I think has a great shot of winning the race. So, um, you know, his name is Geoffrey Camelwar. He's the world half marathon champion. He's the world cross-country champion. He is a phenomenal athlete. And he just has to get it right at a full marathon distance, and he could really do something special on Sunday. The ones that are successful, the ones that do win marathons, talk a little bit about the rewards for them. We talked about the money before. How big is the money? How big are the rewards on the other side? Well, um, you know, the one real cautionary tale from uh, the most famous cautionary tale from Kenyan running country is that of Sami Wanjiru, who won the Olympic gold medal in, in 2008 in Beijing in the marathon at the age of 21 and made maybe $8 million in about four years, having come from nothing. 
and he succumbed to drinking. He was a womanizer. He was dead at the age of 24, um, you know, in really odd circumstances in his hometown. And, you know, there's a lot of stories like that in Kenyan running country because, you know, that kind of money in that area creates huge pressure on, on runners because you're not only running for yourself, you're running for hundreds of people who are reliant on you for their, you know, their shoes, their cars in some instances, their televisions, their schooling. So um, I guess, you know, the, t the top guys can make more than a million dollars a year, but there's not many people who can do that. How large is this world of elite marathon runners? Well, there are six, you know, there are six major marathons uh, in Tokyo, Berlin, Chicago, uh, uh, Boston, London, and New York. So if you think about the elite fields there, you're probably not going to get more than, you know, uh, six to eight really top guys in, in any one race. So that, that tells you how big the elite end of the sport is. There are not many people who, can, who are going to be invited to the major marathons, and that's really where the money is. But there's a whole substrata of runners who are running a kind of second-class and third-class marathons, making as much as they can, you know, ten and $15,000 here and there, and so the world is, you know, the world is actually pretty big. And I, I was really astonished the first time I went to Kenya to look at running country. There were hundreds and thousands of people trying to become professional runners. You saw huge mm. groups everywhere. And I was like, this is a gold rush. You know, people, <laughs> are trying to, people are trying to mine this gold that they think is within their own bodies. And it was really, really astonishing to see it up close. Uh, I'd never seen anything like it. To what extent are these huge marathons like New York, where there are 50,000-plus people participating, to what extent is that an impediment to breaking some of these records? Well, the, you know, the top guys are going out at the, uh, at the start, you know, so they're not gonna, no one's getting in their way. But the fact is, it would be quicker for the top guys to run on a special course on which nobody else was on. Maybe it's uh, a circuit, maybe it's more sheltered than a city would be. Um, you know, in any city marathon, you're going to get hit by wind and, you know, the elements more dramatically than if you were just running a circuit of, say, six or seven miles, you know, in the woods somewhere. Uh, pacemakers could maybe come in and out. Uh, I'm convinced that physiologically it is possible for the elite to break two hours, but I think the right set of circumstances would have to be in place. It would have to be extremely cold as well, so because uh, elite marathon runners get ex they get so hot when they're running. So if you if you could make it kind of the optimum, which would be about 39 degrees, uh, and you could get pacemakers to guide them through, you got the right course, the right setting. I'm sure it's possible. Talk about what pacemakers are for those that may not know. Oh, sorry. Yeah. So it, you know, not all um, marathons use them, but. Generally speaking, pacemakers are used to go at the front of the elite uh, field for up to two-thirds of the marathon, and they not only uh, make sure that the top guys hit their uh, splits so that they are a quarter of the way through the marathon and halfway through the marathon uh, in a time that they, they want to be, but also they're protecting them from the wind, and psychologically they're, they're easing some of the burden of uh, trying to keep to a schedule of, uh, of splits during the race. And, uh, you know, Chicago did something quite bold this year, and they got rid of the pacemakers. And, uh, and in fact, it was a very slow race, but a lot of people thought it was more entertaining for that. 
among the world-class elite runners that are out there today that are going to be running in the New York Marathon and that have been running uh, in, in races recently, who among them might break that two-hour mark? I don't think it's this generation that are going to do it. I think it'll be the next generation. So I would say, you know, 10, 15, 20 years' time will be very close. And so I think it's going to be the next generation of runners. Um, you know, I... Th- Having talked to Geoffrey Mutai, who's now at the tail end of his career, he felt that two hours was possible, you know, physiologically for for his tiny group of elites who are right at the top of the sport in, you know, in the early 2011, 2012. You know, he felt it could be possible, uh, but that's just because he's naturally bullish about his talent. (laughs) Realistically, I think it's going to take a little while. What's going to happen when the mark is finally broken? Well, that guy doesn't have to worry about... um, you know, doesn't have to worry about money for a while, I would have thought. You know, he'll be handsomely remunerated. Um, it's going to be a big deal on a number of different levels. Metaphorically, it's a huge thing for this Everest-like uh, time to be broken. You know, this, this, this feat that we've talked about for so long now, for it to have been broken, I think will be a, a really astonishing moment for athletics. Uh, and I just think, you know, commercially, there are so many people who stand to gain from it being broken um, that there's going to be a big hoopla about it. Shoe companies, you know, TV companies. I could, I could see a huge amount of um, buzz around it. And what does it mean for the sport ongoing once that mark is broken? What does it mean for the sport, and what does it mean for future marathoners? Well, the, you know, the four-minute mile was, uh, you know, was seen as this brick wall, uh, and eventually it's broken in the 50s by Roger Bannister, mm-hmm. famously. And after he broke it, this brick wall didn't seem so much like a brick wall anymore. You know, everyone broke it. The, this year, I think the sixth and seventh American high schooler broke the four-minute mile. So um, I think it shows you that the most barriers are in the mind, that, uh, you know, the human body is capable of extraordinary things. And I also think that it's a, you know, it's, it's going to be a moment which brings the marathon to a lot of people who didn't understand about the elite marathon before because it's one of those transcendent moments. It's very hard to understand if you're watching the New York Marathon or the London Marathon for the first time, who are all these people that are running so fast at the front? And like, you know, what are their lives like? And, and how can I find out why they're so great? Um, you know, their narratives have largely been passed over in coverage of the sport. But I think the two-hour marathon is an opportunity to bring some of those stories to life. Ed Caesar, the book is Two Hours, The Quest to Run the Impossible Marathon. Ed, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. It's been terrific. Thank you so much. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.